0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we will be discussing an attempt at having what is basically a national don't-say-gay bill, uh, also going to be touching on developments in Pakistan as it's been ruled that former Prime Minister Imran Khan cannot uh, hold office in uh, that country for at least the next five years. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports politics and struggle. But to kick things off today, we are. Very happy to be joined by Carly Webb, an athlete, activist, journalist, socialist, contributor to Outsports, and host of the Transporter Room. Carly, thanks so much for joining us. Sean,
1: always great to be here.
0: And it's always great to have you on, Carly. And uh, today uh, we see that Republicans in Congress have uh, introduced the Stop the Sexualization of Children Act of 2022, with uh, some seeing this as a kind of national version of the Don't Say Gay bill of uh, a far right Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. And uh, according to the piece, uh, this would end the use of federal funds quote, to develop, implement, facilitate or fund any sexually oriented program, event or literature for children under the age of 10 and for other purposes. And the bill defines sexually oriented material as, quote, any depiction, description or simulation of sexual activity, any lewd or lascivious depiction or description of human genitals or any topic involving gender identity, gender dysphoria, transgender Genderism, uh, sexual orientation, or related subjects. Now, Carly, uh, uh, we've uh, talked on the show uh, a good bit about how um, this uh, th- this far right assault on uh, basic rights sort of opportunistically uses uh, the protection of children as a way to justify, uh, frankly, this kind of legalized uh, discrimination against the LGBTQ people, and it, this really seems like the logical conclusion of this most recent campaign of uh, trying to paint uh, transgender people as uh, groomers of children and deviants and things like that. And so, you know, this uh, particular piece feels like uh, a a kind of uh, escalation, although it's only being introduced. But I do think it shows just how much momentum uh, this reactionary campaign has gained here recently.
1: Sean, this is the Gilead Republicans at it again. That's what the, these people really believe Handmaid's Tale is a textbook. That's what this that's what this law is. That's what the Rick Scott Rescue America plan is. And this in many ways, this is presidential politics in 2024. Ron DeSantis did that because he's Ron DeSantis and he's running for president. Rick Scott is putting up this ridiculous neo-fascist agenda that he's talking about for the same reason. This is about the Gilead Republicans thinking that they want to turn this country into a Christian dominionist fascist police state. And and yes, it may sound like it may sound overdramatic, but this is the fact of the matter. And, and Sean, quickly, something important that people need to realize about this federal don't say gay law. It's high. It's very broadly defined. This first off, if on the surface, if it was just about schools, this would be absolutely meaningless because schools aren't doing what they talk, what they're talking about. Schools are not teaching this; the kids understand they're not, and really, they're not teaching this at all. But the bill is so broadly defined because there's a part of it that is called the that is called the private right of action. There's a part of this bill, and special thanks to Alejandro Caribalo from from the Cyber Law Project at Harvard for pointing this out on her Twitter this morning. The bill is so broadly defined that a petri- that a pediatric hospital could be sued for having a pride flag or a medical pamphlet on gender dysphoria. It's deputizing anti lgbtq bigots to engage in bounty lawsuits. If you want to know more, go to Alejandra Caraballo's Twitter, because she's a lawyer she really breaks this down. But what it comes down to is the Republican Party is willing to demonize LGBTQ people to get a vote, and if you put them in office, that's their first target. They're going to go after. They're going to go after LGBTQ Americans and say that they're not Americans. Take their rights away. They've already taken away reproductive rights for for cisgender women and really anyone who can get pregnant. They've te- they they are they are eating away at voting rights for people who are not white. So black and brown people. Watch your hey, watch your six when you go vote because they're trying to take it away from you. This is a scorched earth policy designed to build really a fascist police state, and it's time for the working class of this country to wake up, gird up, come together, and hit the streets because it's your rights on the line, it's your job on the line, it's your health care on the line, it's your security on the line.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I noticed was some of the, uh, you know, language that was used within this bill, Carly, like namely the use of this word transgenderism. And that's one of these words that uh, uh, transphobes and homophobes use, words like transgenderism or gender ideology. Or maybe, you know, lately I've noticed people uh, describing themselves as gender critical. That, that That's the new cool way of, of saying that you're a transphobe basically. But it's rooted in this idea that transgender people basically aren't real, that they're just kind of a, a concept that's uh, a, a flight of fancy and fantasy um, in the, the, the fevered minds of the LGBTQ community and their supporters. You know what I mean? And so there's sort of a fundamental dehumanizing aspect uh, uh, to the way things like this are put forth, which I think sort of um, really shows what's really at play here, and that this is a part, as you're describing, it's part and parcel of um, this uh, violent campaign against uh, transgender folks, against LGBTQ people, and I personally would situate it within uh, this uh, broader campaign that we're discussing of uh, an all-out attack on uh, a number of basic rights, you know what I mean?
1: I mean, basically, they're, they're, they took the 14 steps of fascism and they're running the playbook, Sean, that's what this is, transgenderism gender ideology ooh spooky those term those terms at one time transgenderism used to be a word then they re- used to be a term that was used medically that was used by scientists but then they realized it's rather archaic so they stopped using it but now the the Gilead Republicans have picked this up the Gilead fascists let's just call them what they are have picked this up because the idea is if you can scare people if you can scare people against something, it makes it easier for them to mobilize against it. And if you can dehumanize people, you can eliminate people. If you can make people believe absurdities, you can make them commit atrocities. That's and that's what you're seeing here. What you're seeing is scare people, scare people about a, about a group of people that they don't know about. Get them afraid, and then and and, fear, and scared people can do very very evil things history has shown us this and that's what the republicans are trying to do that's what the gilead fascist republicans are trying to do and the real sad thing is is that the democrats won't push back on it because they're afraid if they call them what they are we might lose votes that is why again it's not going to be won in the su- in the suite this battle is going to be taken to the streets which means we're, which means the american proletariat has got to start realizing that they're running the game on you and start standing up, stand shoulder to shoulder, be in the streets and say, no, you will not turn my country into Gilead. You will not turn my state into Gilead. We will fight you the way that, the way that working people have always fought fascists. The machine that kills fascists is committed, united, working class. That's what kills fascists.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm just curious, you know, well, why do you use this term of uh, Gilead and Gilead Republicans? I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously like a biblical reference, but uh, what are you really getting at?
1: No, it, no. If you've ever, uh, you know, the, the Margaret Atwood novel, Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. When when the Christian dominion took over, they changed the name of the country to the Republic of Gilead. Oh, OK. So, and they, so that's why I called them the Gilead Republicans. That's who they are. Call them with the, They're the Gilead fascist Republicans. They have become a fascist white nationalist movement in this country, and they have to be stopped. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party doesn't have the stomach to stop them, so the working class will have to have the stomach to stop them. And that's what's always stopped fascists. Look, at, look throughout history, a united working class, understanding their class interests. Understanding where their class interests lie has been the only thing that stopped fascism. It's it's been proven in history. This level of authoritarianism, this level of fascism, this level of hatred can only be war- can only be defeated in the streets. The Republicans have already shown you their hand. They you've already you saw it January sixth last year. You saw it when they tried to deny an election. You see it with the people that they're trying to run. I mean, look at some of these people, Sean. Look at some of these election deniers. Look at these climate deniers. Look at these anti LGBTQ homophobes and transphobes. How in the world, in the same country, does Herschel Walker get a shot at a U.S. Senate seat? In what world? If you saw the debate between him and Raphael Warnock last week, you know this man is not fit. He's not fit. To be elected to any office, the same way with the people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Lauren Boebert, but these are the people that you're going to get if you uh, that you're going to get from the from the Gilead fascist Republicans, and the and again, it's going to take street heat to do this because the other side of the of the of the so-called two-party political equation, they don't have the stomach to stand up. So the working class has got to do it. It's on us. It's on all of us, American proletariat. It's your fight. Stand up and fight it.
0: Yeah. And I definitely I definitely agree with that. And that is something that has become painfully clear uh, in this most recent period, is that as these just really obvious and violent attacks um, uh, against the LGBTQ community, obviously on abortion rights, on voting rights and these other uh, uh, fundamental uh, democratic rights, um, it's it's just shown time and again that the Democrats just absolutely refuse to uh, to uh, actually fight back back against this uh, far right creep. Instead, what they're doing is, you know, uh, they've engaged in a full embrace of the good Republicans. You know what I mean? The, the quote unquote reasonable or or moderate ones that are that, that are viewed as being separate and distinct and outside of the uh, uh, Trumpist wing of the party, even though in substance they uh, agree quite a bit with them politically. I think what they disagree with often is the presentation of a lot of these Things. But I do agree, Carly, that um, it's going to take um, an organized, uh, a working-class movement. Uh, because when we talk about LGBTQ folks, we are talking about um, a community that overwhelmingly uh, fills the ranks of poor, working, and oppressed people in this country. And so, uh, the exploitation and oppression that they face are sort of compounded with uh, uh, these other sort of deep and long-standing contradictions of the capitalist system itself. And so it seems then, Carly, once we take a look around and see who it is that's really been fighting uh, for and, and around these issues and trying to beat back this right wing assault, it hasn't been uh, the Democrats. I mean, what we see them doing, for instance, is, you know, Joe Biden dangling abortion rights over people's heads like a carrot or a treat or something and basically saying that if enough of you vote for us in November, well, then we'll finally be able to uh, codify Roe into law, which they already could have did. And by the way, Joe Biden. Biden could make abortion access in all 50 states a reality with the stroke of a pen, but continues to refuse to. But uh, that is what we're seeing, with the implication being that if you all don't vote for us, if not enough of you do, well, then you won't get uh, abortion rights and it'll be your fault. So it's that kind of game that Democrats are paying with people's lives while completely ignoring um, the, the 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 state of a community that uh, the Democrats consider as their base. And so what I'm really saying in this bit of a rant that I'm having here Carl is that that uh, that organized militant people's movement, I think, is going to make all the difference in really fighting for a LGBTQ liberation, because this wing of the ruling class that pretends to care uh, clearly doesn't care. You know what I mean? Well, you're
1: seeing that you're starting. People are starting to see that and they're starting to wake up to a little, look with the wave of unionization across this country right now. More and more, you're finding more and more people are realizing that we better organize, the working class better organize because you know capital is. So the thing is, taking that energy and applying it across the board, that is what a committed, that is what committed workers revolution has to do now. And that's what we're seeing. We're in the throes of the beginnings of this. And people need to realize that within that is we all have skin and we all have skin in the game as working people. We all have skin in the game because, if for example, abortion rights is a matter of bodily autonomy. That's being transit matters to me, but it's also a matter of health care, and it ought to matter to all of us. If once again, let's remember, let's take a look at recent history. Covid, they showed you who they were during the covid ex- epidemic. They showed you what the, what the game is. We can restrict health care access for anybody. We'll restrict vaccine access to anybody. We don't need to have a reason. We'll find, we will invent one if necessary. But we want to keep this for profit in all ways. Homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism, they all play into the capitalist drive for profit. They all play into the capitalist drive for expectation, for exploitation in one way or another. And, we're starting to see in our workplaces that people are waking up. Now it's just a matter of not only them waking up but being cognizant to how this plays across the board. because the fact of the matter is, head straight worker, there's no you have a lot more in common with, the, with a gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender worker than you do with the people trying to write down on all of you. and that is and that and that's the crux. The, the Gilead fascist Republicans are hoping you don't make the connection, but you're already beginning to make it. We have to keep going. And like you said, we got to be in the street. We have to be in the streets for this. We cannot depend on the ballot box to be salvation. The salvation is in your mirror. Follow it. If you free your mind, your butt will follow.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now, something you could say more, Carly, about how uh, anti-LGBTQ bigotry is rooted in capitalist exploitation itself.
1: Simply put, it's a matter of, it is a matter of that, of that, you know, that surplus army of labor. If you can keep, if you keep those LGBTQ folks out, if you find ways to discriminate them, they're that, sur- they're that surplus, ar- they are that surplus army. They're that surplus army on one side. You can keep perpetually unemployed and perpetually out of the loop and continue to marginalize them, which, dil- which dilutes the power of all workers. See, when workers stand together, the bosses have a harder time kicking us around. And at the same time, if the workers stand get, if workers stand together and understand where the greater class interests lie in the event that they try and throw you out and you say, oh, now we'll bring the queers in and strike breakers. We'll say no. Uh, an organized movement will say, no, we're not going to break that strike. We're not going to divide workers. See, when we stand together and understand that all our issues are intertwined, intertwined, bosses can't kick you around at that point. Because as long as they can keep divide and conquer, as long as they keep you divided, the profit motive remains strong. There's a profit motive in keeping you divided. That's what, that's what it comes down to. So if we stand, if we stand united, we're already seeing it. In the, we're already seeing it. With mass unionization that's happening in this country and continue to happen. When workers stand together, we win. People united are never defeated, and and right now what we're seeing is people really have to stand united because if you don't think they're the most vulnerable now, just wait. When they get done with who's the most vulnerable, they will eventually get to you, and that has, has dire consequences for all of us.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that class question, I think, is so important when we talk about organizing across lines of division, Carly, because you're absolutely right that one of the ruling class's most devastating tools for maintaining power is dividing up the different sectors um, of the working class over, excuse me, over issues of race, over issues of gender, sexuality, uh, gender presentation, uh, religion, education, all of these sorts of things, all of these things designed to uh, keep us focused on each other. And this does, of course, create real contradictions. And I don't want to uh, pretend like it doesn't. But what we got to realize is the only way to um, overcome or to mitigate those contradictions is through the act of struggle against a common enemy that is uh, impacting us all. And it seems to me, Carly, that, uh, you know, basically we refuse to do that uh, at our own peril as a That sort of core understanding of class, that class consciousness, seems like something that would be a real uh, uh, driving force in this kind of struggle and movement that we're saying needs to be organized.
1: Well, that and that puts and that puts the onus on the back, especially of of those of us who are involved in activism. We got to reach out. We got to reach out where the people are. We have to be where the people are to get them where they're going to be. And that's that's one reason why I've committed to activism. By, my, by myself, but also as a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, getting out there and talking to groups and working with groups and coalition and getting them to see the bigger picture. Because right now, because the bigger picture is being brought to you in living color and you don't need NBC for it. The, the Gilead fascist Republicans are, sh- are showing you their hand. They are putting it right out there. They're bringing it to you straight, no chaser. The big question is, what are you going? If you think it's not your fight too, read all their planks. Eventually there's some, there's something in there that gets to you, that will attack you, that will take something away from you. It's not just about them. And really, we have to get out of the thinking of the them and us mentality. And that's one thing where I think le, where those of us on the left who are committed do drop the ball, is that we is that we don't do well enough to make understand people. There's no us against them, there's just us. The, there is a them them are the people on top they're screwing you but when it comes to the gut level of workers there's no us and them it isn't those it isn't those trans over there those gays over there those pushy women over there those blacks over there there's us and it's time for us to stand shoulder to shoulder and march it's it's past time because because the other side the fascists they're showing you who they are they're telling you who they are we need to believe them
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much Carly for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We move to a break here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today, we're talking about developments inside Pakistan. We're happy to be joined for this conversation today by journalist Wakas Ahmed. Wakas, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And walk us uh, the election commission of Pakistan or the ECP uh, announced today that former prime minister Imran Khan will be disqualified from holding political office in the country for five years. Now, well, according to uh, the chief of the ECP, Sikandar Sultan Raja, um, this is due to what uh, he described as Imran Khan's involvement in, quote, corrupt practices. Now, of course, uh, earlier this year, Imran Khan was ousted from power in Pakistan, something that triggered a massive uh, protest in the streets. And I was hoping you could help us understand, what is uh, uh, what do you think is really at play here with this decision on uh, Khan's entry into the elections of Pakistan?
2: Um, okay, this is another decision by the Election Commission of Pakistan in a long line of controversial decisions. ECP has. Uh, Since Imran Khan was removed, has made very controversial remarks that have betrayed ECP's bias, or ECP's being controlled by the former opposition and the current government of Pakistan. Uh, It all started with uh, after the vote of no confidence that removed Imran Khan, the Supreme Court of Pakistan asked the ECP if. They are prepared to uh, hold an election within a general election within ninety days. Now, constitutionally, the Election Commission of Pakistan is uh, supposed to hold elections. Supposed to be ready to hold elections within ninety days at any time. ACP Chairman at that time said they didn't want, they couldn't hold elections within a whole year, which gave the uh, the new government that had usurped power, power from Imran Khan a whole year of duration to stay. So this is how it started. Now, after Imran Khan, uh, and we talked last time, when Imran Khan was removed uh, as uh, through the vote of no confidence. Since Imran Khan's removal, they have been trying to encircle him. And he, uh, uh, meanwhile, he, his popularity has grown massively in Pakistan. Now, this uh, popularity was seen just last week when Imran Khan contested personally on... Uh, uh, different seats across Pakistan. So, like, the 15 seats in Pakistan, there was elections on it. And uh, PTI won most of these seats. And we see Imran Khan's popularity in every election. It has been rising dramatically. So, finally, they came at him with this, uh, um, with this excuse of a verdict to get him disqualified so that he's out of the running because the current Pakistani government fears that his, he will clean sweep the election. So ECP is doing two things at this time. They're trying to hold off elections so that, Imran, so that Imran Khan's popularity, Imran Khan does not get benefit from his popularity, current popularity that he enjoys if right now elections are contested in Pakistan, many experts believe that he will clean sweep in uh, general elections. So ECP wants to delay elections. Secondly, they want to disqualify him so he's unable to contest elections in the first place. So this is all being done to push him out of Pakistani politics. And all Pakistani, uh, the power brokers in Pakistan, the old feudal uh, feudals of Pakistan, uh, the a former two former parties, that Pakistan had a two-party system, one must remember, in 2000s and in the 90s. And since the 80s, Pakistan has had a two-party system. That two-party system was destroyed by Imran Khan. So those two parties that were at each other's throats for two or three decades, they joined hands and they have now come together to uh, oppose Imran Khan. So you can see like all of these power brokers in Pakistan, the Pakistani deep state, all have combined to push him out of Pakistani politics. This is what's actually happening in Pakistan.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you kind of touched on uh, what my next question was going to be, Waukes, in terms of, you know, just who are these uh, power brokers and why are they so keen on putting Imran Khan out of politics, even though, uh, as you're pointing out and as I think is being made clear by the response of people to uh, Khan, uh, that his uh, popularity has, in fact, only grown over this time.
2: You have to understand that. You have to understand how Pakistani politics has worked for the past 70 years. Since independence, there is a power struggle in Pakistan, and it is not really a power struggle. It, it is ba- basically a, a collusion of sorts. What happens is Pakistan has the most powerful institution as its army, which is in every uh, segment of Pakistani government and Pakistani society and Pakistani economy and Pakistani like big businesses. It is everywhere. So this, uh, military is the primary political power broker in Pakistan. Now, the secondary is the Pakistani feudal system, the Pakistani feudal lords who own large tracts of land, who own industry, and who own most of Pakistan. So between military and these feudals, it it is always, Pakistan is always football between them. Like one gives it to another and another gives back. Since the 90s, uh, like, till the 90s, Pakistan did not have a big middle class. After the 90s and in the early 2000s, a big, huge middle class started emerging. And this middle class found... In Imran Khan, a, 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 a personality that they could all converge on, because Imran Khan was already pop- popular as a sports star, and he was already popular as uh, as you know for his philanthropic activities. He started cancer hospitals and everything. <laughs> So Pakistani, this is basically what we see happening in Pakistan. If you look at, like, underneath all this, this is the rise of Pakistani middle class that is challenging the old power brokers of the country, the military and the feudal class and the industrial class. Like, feudal industrial is the same in Pakistan. It's not a really modernized economy. Its primary productions are, like, sugar, cotton, and some textile industries. This is what Pakistan creates, right? So these... Uh, big barons and the military, they control everything. And what really happened is Imran Khan, as an outsider, initially was tolerated by the military and he was bought in, but he started to go his own way. He thought that he was much bigger than these institutions that had. Rule. Because I feel that Imran Khan also has a big ego. So he tried to make his own decisions uh, going against the Pakistani military. That is why he was removed and uh, military sought help of old feudals and old parties that were powerful in Pakistan and that still enjoy certain power in Pakistan.
0: Yeah. And I'm also curious uh, because I think, as you say, understanding these class dynamics and how um, it's uh, emerged and developed in Pakistan over the last several decades has a a serious impact on how politics are conducted in the country today. And I mean, in terms of uh, uh, these uh, ruling forces that have been trying to keep Imran Khan out of uh, uh, the politics of the country, I mean, um, is there any connection to them and some Some uh, uh, other forces or or other class interests, whether in the West, uh, elsewhere in uh, uh, the region, or are they basically just sort of operating uh, out of a kind of, you know, just sort of internal class dynamic? Just, you know, how how deep is this uh, network of uh, people here that are currently in power in Pakistan?
2: Uh, the powerful people in Pakistan have been powerful for a long time. So ex- external actors in Pakistan or any foreign countries who have influence in Pakistan are connected to them. For example, um, the U- U.S. likes to exclusively, uh, interact with the Pakistani military when it comes to matters of Pakistani foreign policy. This is a thing that where like Democrats in America Prefer to deal with dictators in Pakistan rather than politicians in Pakistan, and which is a huge mistake to not engage with the democratically elected leaders of a country, but to uh, to decide to make decisions about a country of 200 million with just one man who you know heads an institution and does not enjoy popular support. But this has been happening for a long time, and it is the same for rulers of Saudi Arabia, for rulers of UAE. They have business like for. example, for example, Nawaz Sharif has business dealings with the ruler, ruling family in Saudi Arabia. And Nawaz Sharif has the, the former Prime Minister of Pakistan has factories in Saudi Arabia. Nawaz Sharif, while he was Prime Minister, was had, owned a company in Dubai in UAE, and he was an employee while he was the Prime Minister of Pakistan. He was an employee of that you know uh, organization based in Dubai. Uh, he he needed that because he wanted to launder money through Dubai to UK now rulers of dubai know rulers of uae know that nawaz sharif is you know laundering money through their country to other countries and uh, people in uk know that nawaz sharif owns apartments in uk that he claims he does not own in pakistan you know so all of these people know they they know what these people are up to and they leverage these things to have any leverage over pakistani foreign policy because Pakistan is ruled by this corrupt mafia, these like these foreign po- uh, powers have leverage over Pakistani foreign policy through them. And this system works out for all of them. You know, when there's a democratically elected, actual democratically elected government in Pakistan, say Imran Khan, or maybe someone better than Imran Khan, who is actually like maybe uh, much smarter at it than Imran Khan, he would make, give all these powers a very tough time when negotiating on behalf of Pakistan when it comes to, you know, matters of bilateral interest. So it is really important for these foreign countries to support Pakistani corrupt mafia, which is happening. You know, after the vote of no confidence, after military uh, interference in Pakistani politics, after so many activists were picked up, tortured in Pakistan within the past months, human rights violations that have been unprecedented in Pakistan, the sitting MNAs and, uh, 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 you know, uh, political advisors to Prime Minister, uh, Imran Khan was stripped and tortured. So, but no, none of these countries said anything. No, there was no international outrage about like the human rights situation in Pakistan because it is all in support of this garraf mafia that enjoys this support from like external actors. And then it could, uh, you know, continue their dirty work at home.
0: Yeah. And based on what you just said, uh, uh, Waukes, you know, uh, in terms of you laid out what some of the conditions have been like in the country here recently, because as we've been discussing, we've got these uh, powerful ruling elements trying to keep a a popular uh, leader out of power. And so, you know, what impact does that have on the political and the social situation inside Pakistan, which is experiencing sort of its own uh, economic issues. I mean, uh, uh, recently, earlier this year, there was serious uh, flooding that happened in the country as well. I mean, it just feels like the country is faced with a number of uh, serious issues that are uh, uh, happening uh, all at once. And so how does uh, this move, particularly because of reports that uh, following this announcement of Imran Khan being barred from office for five years uh, itself uh, sparked some protests? And so what has this uh, uh, campaign, if you will, sort of meant for uh, politics inside the country, from your understanding?
2: The situation, and uh, this is a really good question, the situation in Pakistan is really volatile right now. It, has, it is probably the worst it has been in its history. And it is like not being appreciated as such, you know, it is really bad uh, because the economy is in the worst state all the time. On top of that, they got floods that have been the worst in Pakistani history. So it is like the most extreme things are happening right now. And on top of this, they removed a political, a popular political leader. So this has resulted in a huge amount of anger, not just at the Pakistani corrupt political elite, the former, you know, the, the, the feudals, but it has also resulted in a huge amount of backlash against Pakistani military. You have to understand that Pakistani middle classes and Pakistani lower classes, they love the Pakistan army. They have historically loved the Pakistani military. And every time a military coup has happened in Pakistan's history, every time a military dictator has come into in Pakistan, they have been welcomed by the people throughout history. This is the first time there is actually some massive, you know, uh, middle-class backlash against, you know, military favoring the old corrupt elite. Uh, And uh, this results in, you know, these institutions, their power... Erodes because of because because of all this, and right now we see Pakistani institution not having enough control inside Pakistan, which makes uh, the situation even more volatile and ripe for revolution of sorts. But the thing is, there is no revolutionary leadership in Pakistan. It is Imran Khan. Imran Khan is, after all said and done, he's still a constitutionalist. He will follow Pakistani constitution. If they send him to jail, he will go to jail. So uh, 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 this is the situation in Pakistan, and it's like leaderless chaos right now. Uh, I don't know what will happen from this.
0: Yeah. And you, you a little bit earlier, you sort of touched on, uh, uh, you know, uh, external forces and their orientation towards uh, Pakistan. And I'm always wondering, you know, Wakis, what is um, what issues like this mean for countries in a uh, regional sense? And I mean, you know, what what do you think of the situation inside Pakistan? How does it reflect on other issues happening uh, in that kind of Excuse me, in that uh, South Asia region, or do you see it having any uh, ripple effects in that uh, part of the world?
2: I don't. I don't think this will have any ripple effect, uh, but it does uh, change Pakistan's relationship uh, with its uh, neighbors. Like the, apparently, this government prefers taking a few steps back from China, and that changes, uh, you know, Pakistan's uh, geographic geopolitical alignment slightly. And uh, if Imran Khan is back in power, he w- will have he probably will not have at least initially good relationship with the U.S. because of all this he believes has been orchestrated by the U.S. So um, that you know, that would change Pakistan's geopolitical alignment, which it, it it feels like Imran Khan will eventually come into power because the, this uh, massive public support does not seem to stop. So there, if there's going to be an election one year down the line, even if Imran Khan personally is disqualified, his party is going to win by a la- landslide. Which will alter Pakistan's, you know, some, uh, geopolitical relationship, like especially with Russia. Pakistan might get slightly closer to Russia, maybe, or depending on how U.S. deals with Pakistan at this point. You know, if uh, there's some U.S., uh, 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 talks with Imran Khan or his party, some reconciliation then you know th- this might not happen, but looks like Pakistan is uh for now in the u s camp mostly and which has been you know uh, which Imran Khan was taking it away from.
0: Definitely. Where we thank you so much, Walkers, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. Today being joined by Miguel Garcia of the Anti-Conquista Collective, also the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapon podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Hey, Sean and Jackie, good to be back. Hope you all are doing well.
0: Absolutely. And uh Miguel uh Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Ursay has become uh the first NFL owner to publicly call for uh, a serious consideration into the remover of Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington Commanders from uh NFL ownership. And uh he recently did uh, uh an interview scrum at uh, some fall meetings earlier this week uh discussing uh, Uh, Snyder's actions and activities as uh, owner of a team quote gravely concerning he said I believe there is merit to removing him as owner of the commanders there's consideration that he should be removed now Miguel just last week we were talking about the reports of uh, you know the the kind of uh, grumblings that's been happening amongst uh, certain levels in the NFL about wanting Snyder to be gone and Snyder uh, uh, reportedly talking about how much dirt he basically has on um, a number of uh, different people high up in the National Football League uh, seemingly making the statement, if they're to be believed, that uh, if he goes down, he intends to take some people with him. And so, I mean, you know, uh, I think that. Uh a part of this that perhaps is kind of a second or third hand, but it does seem clear that there is a sentiment within the higher levels of the league to uh, remove Snyder. And so I'm just wondering not only what you think of uh, Jim Irsay's comments here, but I mean, what do you think is really at play with this whole Dan Snyder issue?
3: Um. So when I first heard the story of Jim Irsay, as you said, he's literally the first owner to come out publicly saying it's time to uh house Dan Snyder from owning the Washington commanders after all of these scandals um, and throughout the decades of all the issues with Dan Snyder, um, I was a little surprised because usually the owners kind of stick together and don't really, you know, uh, say anything about the other owners. Um, they, they usually stick together on stuff like this. So I was a little surprised that this actually happened and it was one of the first owners to actually say this publicly publicly that we want to get Dan Snyder out and that we probably have the votes to do it. Um, They need 24 owners out of the 32 owners to vote uh, Dan Snyder out. But I'm also not surprised someone came out because to, to publicly say they want Snyder out because they might be feeling scared from, as you said, Dan Snyder, coming out last week saying if he goes down, he got all this dirt on all these owners, uh, one of them being also Jerry Jones. Um, so even that, just uh, Dan Snyder making that threat, hey, if you guys if you guys take me down, I'm going to bring out all the dirt on all of you. All you, pretty much most of these owners are billionaires. Um, all the dirt on all of you. Um, so it's kind of like the owners here, Jim are say representing most of the owners with him coming out publicly. It's pretty much trying to protect all the other owners from getting their dirt out. Now that, uh, it's so, I think that's probably the main reason that they came out here publicly to, to say they want Snyder out. Um, but <clears throat> honestly, Snyder probably does have a lot of dirt on these owners. Um, Let's just say with Jim Arce, I don't know if there's any current dirt on him, but he's had some issues in the past. Um, he's he's got he's gotten arrested for DUIs in the past and had those scandals. So you know he's not like a clean owner here in that sense. Um, so I think it's just the rest of the owners pretty much deciding to protect themselves because they know that Dan Snyder might probably does have some stuff on them.
0: Yeah, and I'm just wondering like, what is it about Snyder that has created such a a serious response from what I think you accurately describe, uh, Miguel, as a pretty insular group of of very wealthy people who typically don't uh, criticize each other? I mean, certainly, and I think what we've been learning here recently sort of proves this, certainly uh, Dan Snyder is not the only NFL owner or higher up in the league with uh, skeletons in his closet. And so I mean, what is it about Snyder that really, uh, you know, uh, gins up this kind of feeling? I mean, is, is it just how uh, public and uh, consistent a lot of these scandals are? Or what do you think?
3: I think it is, like you're saying, um, these scandals that are, have to do with Snyder and how consistent they are. Because, you know, the one they're investigating the last couple years on Snyder was um, with misconduct at his, at the workplace, under his ownership with the Washington Commanders, um, previous uh, former employees, uh, mostly uh, women, uh, cheerleaders that worked for the team, um, accusing them of sexual harassment and all this other stuff. Um, so I think that's kind of why he might be the target. And also, I think him just being the target, kind of like helps the NFL kind of hey, if we take Dan Snyder out, they kind of like trying to show to the public, hey, we're we're trying to clean clean our the bad guys out of our ownership, even though they know they all got they all got scandals. They're all billionaires. They're all capitalists. Um, you know, they exploit people as billionaire capitalists. There's plenty of owners that have their own scandals. Um, so in a way, I think it's also self-preservation within the owners and Dan Snyder might be the easiest target to focus on because of the public scandal that he has. Um, but then, And that's also probably why Dan Snyder decided to publicly speak out and say, hey, if you guys take me down, I'm going to take you all down. And then also, if you all remember, the whole John Gruden email scandal all started from him sending emails to the former Washington commander, the general manager um Bruce Allen, so I think those just kind of piled up, those different scandals that made the NFL look bad, that made it kind of easier to focus on Dan Snyder, when we all know that a lot of these owners have their own um shady stuff that they do.
0: Yeah, definitely. And speaking of uh, NFL owners, uh, this same group of owners voted uh, 31 to 1 earlier this week uh, that will permit the Compensation Committee to open negotiations on a new contract with Roger Goodell, the uh, commissioner of the National Football League. But, I mean, reportedly these uh, discussions were marked by a serious heated exchange between uh, Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, and uh, Jerry Jones the owner of the Dallas Cowboy. Now, uh, according to ESPN, they were told by some unnamed sources that uh, uh, Robert Kraft was a part of the majority, with uh, Jerry Jones being the lone dissenter, uh, with Jones reportedly telling Kraft, don't F with me, and things like this. And this also wasn't the first time that Jerry Jones has uh, spoken out against a new contract for uh, uh, Roger Goodell. And I'm just wondering, you know, what is really at issue here in terms of jones and uh, Goodell, as far as this whole
3: contract business so this kind of goes back to the last um contract that they gave roger Goodell. so if people don't know roger Goodell, is the commissioner of the nfl he's been the commissioner for over a decade i can't remember how long now maybe almost 15 years um but the last time he had to do a contract extension in 2017 Jerry Jones was also the owner that spoke out that kind of wanted to, uh, that kind of critiqued Roger Goodell um, and the way he's running the NFL. Because pretty much Roger Goodell works for the owners. Um, they decide his contract, they decide who the commissioner will be to run the team. So really, all his bosses are the 32 NFL owners. But as you said, 31 out of 32 voted to enter these new contract negotiations to get them, give him a new extension, except for Jerry Jones. So Jerry Jones is probably the most powerful owner in the NFL um, and has been for a while. And him being the only one against this was also a little surprising because usually because of his power as the Dallas Cowboys owner, he usually will have few other owners on his side on stuff like this. Um, But it does go back to that previous contract negotiations they had with Goodell where Jerry Jones spoke out and they pretty much changed Jerry. uh, They changed Roger Goodell's contract structure the last time before he would have a salary. But this last contract extension in 2017 when Jerry Jones, Jerry Jones made sure that I guess his contract wasn't salary and it was based on performance bonuses. Um, so it does go back to that, I guess, that beef that Jerry Jones has. Um, the other interesting thing here is just him, and Rob, him and Kraft uh, getting to a heated exchange because Robert Kraft is probably, him and Jerry Jones are pro- probably the two most powerful owners in the NFL. Robert Kraft owns the New England Patriots. Um, so it just goes back to those five years ago when Jerry Jones first spoke out about having to uh, alter uh, Goodell's contract. And then it had, I think last time it was because of certain issues they had with Jerry, with uh, Roger Goodell that Jerry Jones uh, raised, which was mostly because it looked some of the scandals back then that have happened to the NFL. And that was kind of the main reason why he was against Goodell. And in this article, about Rod, about this uh, heated exchange and mentions that Godell, even with this bonus, performance bonus uh, contract structure he has now, he still made over $128 million in 2020 and 2021. So he's heavily compensated. But um, with only one owner here disagreeing with giving him a new contract, pretty much shows that most of these owners are in favor of Roger Godell's regardless of the scandals that have been happening with the NFL. And this article from ESPN points out kind of the main reasons why these owners still support the Dallas Jerry Jones. He's, you know, got a new tenure and collective bargaining agreement with the union, which, you know, the union, the NFL union might not be the strongest out of all the sports unions. Um, so they added an extra game, which is more profits for the owners. They pointed out in this article how Roger Goodell uh, didn't let any games get missed during the COVID-19 pandemic, whereas like sports in the NBA, other leagues like the NBA, NHL, MLB, all canceled part of their seasons when the pandemic first happened. Um, and they got a new media TV deal that's worth a hundred billion dollars. So obviously, most of these owners are going to be in favor of Roger Goodell because he's, he's making them money as the commissioner of the NFL. Um, but Jerry Jones being the one to, uh, pretty much disagree with giving them an extension. Um, not surprising, but it, I could see Jerry Jones just being that one person that, you know, voted against this, making sure that Goodell has another, uh, he gets to, uh, figure out another way he wants to uh, control Godot when it comes to his contract.
0: Yeah. And uh, switching gears a little bit here, uh, Miguel, I also want to touch on this issue about um, uh, Ukraine that that has joined in the the World Cup bid in 2030 by both uh, uh, Portugal and Spain uh, uh, with the Spanish Federation saying that it reflects, quote, not an Iberian bid, but a European bid uh, in their announcement. And so uh, the 2022 World Cup is set to begin uh, next month in Qatar on November 20th. With the 2026 tournament set to take place in uh, the U.S., uh, Canada, and Mexico, and so uh, just wondering what you see as the uh, significance of Ukraine joining in on this World Cup bid. I mean, especially as quite obviously, there's a broader context of the ongoing war in Ukraine that's escalating uh, in this moment as well.
3: Yeah. So, um, this article was a couple weeks ago, and I didn't ever, I didn't. I didn't see it when it came out or there's, and then I found this article from the Washington post about it. And then I Googled it and there's all these articles about Ukraine getting added to this bid. Um, but to me, this, there, this is just a perfect example of how sports, like I have my podcast called sports as a weapon, um, like named it that because sports could be, used as a weapon for change, but it could also be a weapon used against you or for propaganda, propagandize certain political uh, issues. And to me, this is one of those ways where they use sports to politi- uh, propagandize what they want to, you know, what the broader uh, U.S. society, U.S. government wants to, and then European society and government wants to do when it comes to the war in Ukraine and Russia, you know, they want to continue to, to continue the propaganda to favor the side of Ukraine. And here they're using sport, especially soccer, the most popular sport in the world, um, by adding Ukraine to this bid. Cause originally it was just supposed to be Spain and Portugal for this 2030 bid. Um, but now they're adding Ukraine and it's fairly, very obvious to me that this is, they're using Ukraine here just for their their political gain when it comes to the uh, information war with the war with Russia and Ukraine. Um, And one of the quotes that really caught my eye in this article from the uh, Portuguese Football Federation President Fernando Gomes, he said, football is more than football. It's a logical and natural decision. And then he said, Ukraine cannot disappear from our minds once the war is over. We have to give them hope. And lastly, another there's a lot of good quotes in here. He said this proposal aims to contribute through the power of football to the recovery of a country undergoing reconstruction. I just found this uh, interesting because we never see uh, them talking about other countries when it comes to World Cup. Like, usually, let's say, like, China, when they had the Olympics, because World Cup and the Olympics are very similar. Um, When that was happening, all we heard was China being demonized over and over and over for hosting the Olympics and how bad the Olympics are, which they are. I did a whole episode on how the Olympics are bad um, and how capitalism contributes with the Olympics to displace people whenever they host, um, host the World Cup or the Olympics. But, you know, they didn't demonize China. I wonder why they didn't. We all know why. Um, Same thing when Russia hosted the World Cup and the the World Cup in the past. They did the same thing. You know, they just demonized Russia. But here they are with Ukraine, you know, using the World Cup as a positive for football and to, you know, the power of football, the recovery of a country. Like, it's just the perfect example of how they're using sport. To continue their uh, geopolitical aim, even though you know FIFA here is not really involved in military geopolitics, you know they're they're part of those powerful elite of they're the powerful elite of this sport, and they know that this will just uh, be another way to help you know the rest of the capitalist class who mostly support this uh, to support Ukraine. Um, with the war, with NATO, everything. Um, so I just thought it was a perfect example of how sport can be used for for propaganda, pretty much.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch the DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us oh yes we're here we're back top of the hour it is friday october 21st 2022 and of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, if by any means necessary, to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 2 521 1320 Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter.com B A M Necessary. And as always, we are streaming live at rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B A M Necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And at the top of the hour today, the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack has officially sent a subpoena to former President Donald J. Trump of course, uh, dealing with his uh, central role in organizing and facilitating and ordering the uh, uh, armed attack on the Capitol on uh, January 6, 2021. And uh, the subpoena was issued to try to compel Trump to try to sit for a deposition under oath and to provide certain documents. Uh, According to uh, the piece, uh, it's for a quote one or more days of deposition testimony beginning on or about November 14th. And so, I mean, uh, how uh, Trump himself will respond to this, I think, will be (laughs) interesting to see, to say the very least. Also, speaking of Trump and uh, January 6th, uh, Steve Bannon, of course, a former head of uh, uh, Breitbart and former uh, Trump advisor, um, has been sentenced to four months of prison for contempt of Congress. Uh, for uh, uh, sort of his refusal to cooperate with this same investigation of uh, January 6th. Things like this. Uh, also being reported that uh, the United Nations Security Council has approved a quote sanctions regime uh, against one Jimmy Barbecue Cherizet of uh, uh, Haiti with his uh, G9 group. Uh, according to the resolution, quote, Jimmy Sherizay, aka Barbecue, has engaged in acts that threaten the peace, security, and stability of Haiti and has planned, directed, or committed acts that constitute serious human rights abuses. Now we've been discussing on the show, uh, number one, about how uh, some of the wealthy ruling families of Haiti and also the core group and others are uh, most likely responsible for uh, the arming and funding of a lot of these different groups. But the focus on uh, an individual, be it Sherry Zay or whoever else, uh, honestly feels like a kind of deflection play so that the attention is turned from the real gangs, uh, that are uh, plaguing Haiti in this moment. And uh, as we've been noting here on the show, is that Haiti's chief issue, its main problem, actually is imperialism. That's sort of the real gang issue in the country. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Chuck Modianu, a justice journalist and sports writer for Deadspin. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Sean, great to be here today.
0: Absolutely, and it's great to have you, Chuck. And I wanted to start today by uh, discussing ongoing protest for uh, uh, David Lazarus, who was uh, shot and killed uh, earlier this year here in D.C. by uh, an off-duty commander by the name of Jason Bagshaw, who was infamous amongst uh, uh, the local movement in the streets here in D.C. as someone known for being violent uh, against uh, protesters. So, I mean, to begin, uh, Chuck, if you could give us sort of a refresher on what happened to uh, Lazarus Wilson and where things stand with his case today.
4: Right. Well, um, correct. Bagshaw is infamous. And what you have to know, this happened back in July and Bagshaw was off duty and he was at a bar with his wife um, and they were drinking at this bar. And um, Lazarus Wilson he is in the street. And he got in a uh, sort of an altercation with with someone else. Uh, not, not it was it didn't wasn't physical or anything like that. Um, and he was in the street, and he he had a gun. And what happened is Bagshaw turned around, and he shot. Uh, we have some video. He shot Lazarus. He didn't try to deescalate. He didn't uh, notify himself. He was uh, in plain clothes. And it was boom, boom. And when the protest community heard this, they said, oh, my God, it's Bagshaw. Because they're in the protest community. Everyone was saying it's only a matter of time between Bagshaw kills a man because of his in- incredible history. And with the family, it came this weekend from Philadelphia. The reason they came protests. There have been ongoing protests, but coming from Philadelphia, mother and and other family members is a long way because Bagshaw was um, back on the force now, back on the force. And one family member told me, well, we're worried he's going to kill someone else too. We also want justice for our son. So there are a lot of issues here, right? There are a lot of issues there. The fact that uh, Lazarus had it gun makes it, will make it almost impossible to get a conviction, because that's just way. It's, it's impossible when you don't have a gun. That's the history of D.C. police. But just mere having a gun does not mean someone should be shot. does not mean some uh, uh, an officer should not um, say who they are. But but, but there, the other layers are that he was never given a breathalyzer test. Bagshaw was at a bar drinking and was never given a breathalyzer test. That should have been standard operation operating procedure. And this is what the mother... Told me last Saturday when I interviewed you I was very angry uh, about that. So what the community and the family are asking for is full transparency that that which never happens.
0: Yeah, and I was actually not long before the hour started today. I was looking at a clip um, from uh, Tanya Wilson Lazarus's mother, and she was talking about how she feels disrespected by the chief of police. Uh, Conti and Mayor Muriel Bowser saying that uh, no one uh, even contacted her to, to tell her that uh, her child died. And this all just honestly feels par for the course uh, with D.C. police for sure. But uh, I think in particular, you know, speaking in speaking about the police in general in this country, when these sorts of things happen, and I think you're, you're right, Chuck, that if that, you know, In under whatever circumstances, it can be very difficult to uh, have real accountability for officers either off duty or on duty. Um, when they brutalize or kill someone. But now when we talk about the presence of a weapon, well, that's, you know, I think, you know, it'll likely be a kind of an excuse that is jumped on for why this shooting uh, uh, was justified. And so it seems that there's always some reason why the police were ultimately correct. And and it it can never sort of be acknowledged that uh, uh, they acted in a way that was either incorrect or too knee-jerk or too violent uh, or what have you which I think is precisely why we continue to see uh, so many continuing uh, protests around uh, police killings and police violence, be it around Lazarus Wilson or any other number of people that we can name. And I think it also goes to show, Chuck, why it's important that we continue to have a movement against uh, racist police terror. Because I mean, we see the response from you know elected officials and uh, things like that. And so, in terms of keeping the issue um, at the more from the people's consciousness and uh, in terms of really fighting, you know, for justice for people, it seems like that's going to have to come from the streets because those in the hall of power uh, don't seem terribly interested in that sense.
5: Well, that's,
4: that's exactly right. And, um, and yeah, and that was the interview you allude to. I I'd interviewed um, the mother and, and she did say to the mayor, I, I never got condolences. She did say to the chief of police, no one gave me condolences the only phone call I have gotten was to hear that my son is dead and so and now you're putting this man back on the street and I think that is the the issue to begin with that we can all talk about in the infamous Jason Bagshaw I've spoken with uh bagshaw many many times I'm in the street covering protests everybody has he would engage with uh, with protesters he, he would smile and talk cordially and then he would act in a very um, aggressive manner, if not criminal manner, multiple occasions. We have videos of this. Of he, he would run to a, a, a snack van that was supporting protesters and break the window and, and run and do that when the, the van was doing nothing. We've seen him being overly aggressive in arrest um, with protests. And, that, and that, that includes the arrest of um, the mother of Karan Hilton, who was killed, and, and Terrence Sutton is a D.C. police officer going to trial as we speak. So you have this history, and this history is on video. And why is what um, Tanya Wilson said so important? Because Jason Bagshaw was elevated and promoted to Commander Bagshaw. You see Lieutenant Bagshaw in the 2020 uh, uprising. So the very behavior that got the ire of all the protesters, aggressive, and, and, and more than aggressive, even uh, uh, potentially criminal behavior from, from one of my eyes on video scenes, that got you a promotion. That got you a promotion. And this happened, and that got you back on the street. And if you were about doing your job, the very least you would have done is given a breathalyzer because the breathalyzer is so critical – because we could have, we could have actually tangible um, data if he, he broke the law, if he if he was uh, uh, um, drunk because he didn't announce himself and he just turned around and started shooting. So, you know, this is indicative of the entire de- police department of Chief Conte and Mayor Bowser.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, I was actually just thinking, you know, about other incidents and you name some um, about, uh, uh, you know, off duty officers and, and, and killings in D.C. I remember back in 2019, there was the case of Daquan Young, uh, who was killed uh, here in D.C., also by an off-duty police officer. Now, that was three years ago and I was actually just looking up Trying to look up some information on it, and I believe to this day we still don't even know that officer's name. And so you can't imagine if your child, someone you knew, someone you cared about, was killed in this way, and you don't even, uh, you're not even able to uh, know that person's name. And we know that if the shoe was on the other foot. That you know, if 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 it was in fact you know a someone who uh, harmed a, a, a police officer, then <laughs> there would be no hiding from them. You know, uh, uh, civilians don't have this uh, expectation of uh, protection or or privacy or having their identity hidden at, at, out of an effort to carry out that protection when it comes to the police. But when the shoe is on the other foot, well, then we know that other uh, police oftentimes have that kind of institutional protection. And so I don't think it can be overstated, uh, uh, Chuck. The fact that the police um, are a protected group In the United States, they have a a benefits and perks and even a separate bill of rights. That uh, the rest of us aren't able to enjoy. And that's precisely because of the role they play in this capitalist system, which is ultimately to protect property and serve the interest of the ruling class. And, uh, you know, I think we often make the mistake. People often make the mistake of thinking that uh, when the police say they protect and serve, that they're supposed to protect and serve us. But no, there's a distinct class character to the way policing looks um, under this system and understanding how white supremacy is also uh, built into this system as well. It's precisely why there is such a racialized character to police murder and to police violence. You know what I mean? And so as such, it it is those same class interests that city governments are often beholden to. In this case, the administration of Mayor uh, Muriel Bowser and uh, uh, current police chief Richard Conti. And, you know, for people who live outside of D.C., I mean, you know, even though Muriel Bowser, who has this reputation of being a so-called progressive, I mean, she supports the D.C. police every single, excuse me, She uh, supports the D.C. police every single time they brutalize or kill someone uh, without exception. I mean, I I defy anyone to uh, find an example of where the D.C. police brutalize or kill someone. And uh, Bowser uh, wasn't basically in support of them, you know what I mean? But then when we go back to her connections to, you know, Mike Bloomberg, Mr. Uh, uh, Stop and Frisk himself. And so even in the city, even in a supposedly progressive city with prominent black leadership, we still see these same issues of racist police terror, uh, uh, Chuck. And so as such, I think it shows sort of the deep systemic root of it and not necessarily a whether or not uh, the local leadership has a D or an R behind their name. You know what I mean?
4: So what you mean, and I want to elaborate on a point you mentioned about Michael Bloomberg, who is renowned for his uh, stop and frisk terror, which happened in New York City under his watch, where nearly, I think, 90 percent, of everyone who has stopped in Frisk, whether it's African-American or Latino. And um, that is um, Mayor Bowser's mentor. That is been in, in this most recent campaign for president when Michael Bloomberg was running for president. Remember, there was a short time before he, he left. That is who uh, Mayor Bowser endorsed. And that's her mentor. But more importantly than that, the, the policies that exist in D.C., the stop-and-frisk policies, and we have reports to, to prove this, are identical to the stop-and-frisk policies that happened in New York City under Bloomberg, but without the, the the mass attention. So when you say Michael Bloomberg, people are like, oh my God, stop-and-frisk. They'll point to, to, to the reports done by, I think, it was the New York Civil Liberties Union. Well, we have the same reports here in D.C., but there's not a piece. And I think you saw... Beyond the, the, the killing, we saw a, a week and a half ago, there was a climate strike, uh, climate protest um, in D.C. Uh, with the World Bank and all of that. And all week, it was a predominantly, there probably white protesters, and they white protesters, and there were a few black protesters. And the one black protester, his name is Kevin Kramer, was pulled out. Of, a, of the other protesters and just singled out and arrested. So, so even within the solidarity, interracial solidarity of, of protests for climate justice, they pulled out Kevin Kramer. And Kevin Kramer is well-known with the police uh, because he was part of the George Floyd protest. So he, uh, he broke no laws or anything like that. And what happened is um, on that day, um, this past Saturday, he got out of jail. He was welcomed with a lot of jail support. But he was also given three charges, like assault on a police officer, resisting arrest. Uh, these are things, if you watch the video, you're not seeing that. And that's not unlike what MPD does. That target, even within the protest community, is is doing racial um, stop and print. So we have to fight that. And in his case, we want to make sure that all those charges are dropped. But these are the things that continually happen.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it just kind of shows how, you know, That that culture of uh, political suppression, because that's what it is. And and that's uh, also a big part of the police's role under this system is to suppress and and try to beat back physically um, any attempt to uh, uh, resist the machinations of the state. And we definitely saw that uh, two years ago when the George Floyd rebellion uh, was at its height. And D.C., just like so many cities and towns across this country, uh, the streets just Filled with people on a daily basis, uh, crying for justice for George Floyd. And uh, we saw these attempts, you know, speaking of Bowser, I mean, we saw her, you know, put in this ridiculous curfew, which then helped facilitate uh, 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 what, I if I remember correctly, was June 1st, uh, 2020, when uh, Donald Trump uh, ordered those uh, federal troops to uh, attack us there outside of the White House. I mean, I was there when it happened, myself and uh, uh, some Colleagues, And so we see how these two ruling class parties can work in tandem to help this happen. Although, you know, this came in the form of a a spat between uh, 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 Muriel Bowser and Donald Trump. They got into some ridiculous pinch fight on Twitter. But as I like to remind people on the issue of policing, uh, Muriel Bowser and Donald Trump are fundamentally the same. There's actually not that much difference between them. They both love the police. And so uh, this is why a real sort of independent police. Political um, uh, uh, element and effort and movement is really needed because we see that, whether purposefully or even sometimes on accident, the two ruling class parties are both uh, organized to protect the interests of the capitalist state, which, of course, is contrary to our interests as poor working and oppressed people. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 02521 1320. That's 2 02521 1320. I continue to be joined by Chuck Modiano and uh, Chuck uh, Jennifer Robinson, a barrister and a lawyer for uh, journalist and WikiLeaks founder and political prisoner Julian Assange has said that a quote urgent political fix. Is needed in his case right now, uh, because the legal appeals against his extradition to the United States could very well go on for another decade as his physical and mental health continues to decline. And uh, she also noted that uh, you know the the new British Prime Minister, quote, whoever that ends up being, now this follows from the recent resignation of uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss after only 44 days of uh, serving uh, uh, was saying that whatever new uh, British PM uh, uh, comes into play needs to take uh, a position uh, uh, on this issue with uh, uh, Assange and uh, raise it with the U.S., which is obviously trying to extradite him to this country so that he can you know, be subject to some uh, kangaroo court and be imprisoned and tortured here for the rest of his natural life. Now, here recently in Washington, D.C., and in the U.K., uh, we saw uh, uh, demonstrations in solidarity with Assange. Matter of fact, in the U.K., they had a human chain of at least uh, 3,600 people in uh, uh, solidarity. And so So, you know, as a a justice journalist, uh, Chuck, I'm just wondering, you know, why you see it as important that uh, we continue to fight and really champion the cause of Julian Assange, uh, understanding uh, the serious um, uh, revelations that he made in exposing uh, the crimes of uh, U.S. imperialism uh, and others?
4: Well, you know, I've been fighting for Julian Assange for a long time, but what I I really don't want to reduce it to a person, right? Because Julian Assange is fighting for journalism. It's fighting for whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. It's fighting for someone who exposes crimes, and in his case, military crimes, you know? And so it's military crimes or police crimes or crimes against the state, when you go after someone unjustly for their journalism, it's not about that person. I know some people don't care for Julian Assange for a variety of reasons. And to what I say to those people is, it's not about him. It's about you. If you're a journalist, it is about your ability to expose corruption. And when Julian Assange, kid, kid uh, they go after him, it's a message to everyone. It is a message to every journalist that there are boundaries. And and I want to put a little fine point on it because one of the great things about uh, my job when I interview people is I learn a lot from the people I interview. You, you yourself have spoken incredibly, uh, very eloquently to to Julian Assange and and, and, and and its impact on journalism and you as a journalist. Well, you know what was interesting? One thing I learned that I didn't know until October 8th, or didn't really process, I should say, is that America is using the Espionage Act as one of the means to get a 1917 Espionage Act in a, in a, over 100 years ago and shouldn't even really be around. But the Espionage Act has never been used against a journalist before for reporting information, right? If that's never – he will be the first journalist used under that. So, and, and it's groundbreaking in two separate ways. One that I just mentioned, um, you know, he doesn't work for the government. And don't get me wrong, many people have been prosecuted under the Espionage Act wrongfully as whistleblowers who shouldn't have been. But to now extend it to journalism is saying now anyone who reports the crime from a whistleblower is, is, is equally liable. That's number one. And here's the second one. And I didn't process this. The second one is he's not an American citizen. How can you charge someone under an espionage act, which is basically a, a treason, if you're not even an American citizen? How, how can you have treason? So what it does is it extends. The United States powers to have global jurisdiction over journalists, that that the United States can go after any journalist around the entire globe who decides to report factual information. And as you have eloquently said, there is nothing that Julian Assange has reported that has been contested for facts, only that he published it. I'm quoting you right now. So when you add that together and look at the entire the global aspect, it is very scary times.
0: Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. And, you know, it's so funny because I feel like a part of what the Julian Assange um, case sort of exposes about the U.S., it's the hypocrisy around this issue of uh, free speech in in terms of if you're publishing things, that uh, uh you know exposed the crimes of imperialism and things like that well then you have to be targeted and made a uh, uh, uh an example out of but even but even beyond that even without the case of Julian Assange even if that never happened if Julian Assange was never born the concept of free speech would still be a complete joke uh uh in this country I mean we know that uh about 90 percent of the media in the United States is controlled by by six corporations, uh, Comcast, CBS, Disney, News Corp, AT&T, and Viacom. That's the big six of media ownership in the United States. I, I mean, shucks. So the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, one of the world's most uh, uh, richest men. You know what I mean? But you're going to tell me that somehow we have a quote-unquote uh, a free press. And so, you know, my question, like with so many things, is like, well, you know, free for who? And like to, to whose benefit is this uh, supposed freedom? I mean, how free could it be if uh, platforms like Sputnik can be deplatformed and taken off of these major uh, podcast platforms and kicked off of YouTube and all these sorts of things, not because of some crime that we uh, committed, not because of, uh, you know, uh, the FCC uh, violation or anything like that, but simply because uh, uh, this is a Russian media outlet and the U.S. is engaged in a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine. And so because of the uh, political climate, you know, a uh, Russian media then becomes a, uh, uh, a target. And what's even more cynical about that is that all of that is being done. Out of a supposed attempt to combat quote unquote uh, 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 misinformation. But in truth, it's about ensuring that uh, US imperialist propaganda holds hegemony and hold sway in the consciousness of the people in this country, what it seems to me would contradict the idea of a free press as uh, it's sort of popularly communicated here in this country. But we've got a couple of callers on the line here. First up is Tamara. Tell us what's on your mind.
5: Hi, Sean. Hi, Chuck. Um, Yeah, thank you for really Good program today, and I guess your earlier conversation about like war and geopolitics kind of got me thinking about um, Assange and how the U.S. is extraditing him, and how it's, it's it's very extra legal, or they have to like make these very broad connections to their policies here that way to rationalize, you know, jailing um, someone who is not of their, I guess their legal territory almost seems like very are extra legal. But then I wonder to what extent does AUKUS play a role in this? Because that's often discussed as like a kind of military um, kind of, uh, how do you say, alliance. But what does this create, like this weird, like legal net between these three countries and how they operate together? Because, right, he's an Australian citizen, but yet he gets jailed in in, or, or, or imprisoned in England, and then the U.S. can then say, hey, let's get him over to our nation. So I, I see AUKUS once again kind of like um, doing its things. So I just wonder, like, do you think there's a connection between AUKUS and their alliance and these very extra-legal kind of, I don't know how to say, because it's such like a weird uh, situation how this gets done, even though there's no real laws in the books for this. So yeah, that was my comment slash question. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Tamir. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, uh, it's an interesting question. I tend to think that. AUKUS, uh, speaking here for those who don't know, this uh, basically uh, nuclear uh, uh, power agreement between Australia, the UK, and the United States—that um, is—that really only exists um, as a part of the U.S.'s new Cold War against uh, China. That—that's basically what that all is about. And while I—I I don't tend to think that that grouping specifically has much to do uh, with Assange or the kind of extra legal character. Of his uh, uh, case, but I mean, I do think that AUKUS is, you know, from a geopolitical standpoint, and understanding the role that uh, Assange plays in that as well, it's it's a kind of part and parcel of this broader effort of uh, U.S. imperialism. Uh, to try to maintain hegemony and to try to keep its um, vice-like grip over uh, the destiny of uh, people's resources and lands all uh, across this earth. And so it will create any number of formations. It will create rules, bend rules, break rules at its whim if that's what in its interest. And so, like I say, I don't necessarily see like a direct correlation, but I mean, when we look at sort of the broader machinations of a U.S. imperialism that is in decline, well, then I think it's uh, just kind of one aspect of a broader piece. Uh, We have another caller on the line here. Dave, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, Sean. Hey, Chuck.
6: Chuck, uh, the first thing that I thought of when I saw the rumor that uh, Tom Brady might be getting divorced was I was really pissed off because it means that he may never retire now. (laughs) <laughs>
4: right. <laughs> you, you you might you might you might be right about that. You might be right about that. Or he lost his marriage to go eleven and six and get kicked out of the playoffs in the first round.
6: Yeah, he actually seems to be on a decline this year, which is this looks good. But my question is about the Draymond Green uh, violence in in Golden State. Um, when I saw that punch and the way he knocked out, you know, pretty much knocked out Jordan Poole. The first thing that came to my mind was when the, uh, the Golden State owner shoved Kyrie Lowry, uh, Kyle Lowry in the middle of the NBA Finals a few years ago when Kyrie, uh, Kyle Lowry landed in the stands and that minority owner just kind of shoved him for no good reason and virtually had no consequences. Um, but I was just uh, I just wanted to know your thoughts generally on like this like, intra-team violence, um, how it is a form of workplace violence, um, the power dynamics between Draymond Green and Jordan Poole that differential and how, you know, the Warriors didn't even really seem to, to punish Draymond. And and then he came out with this like kind of bizarre documentary a couple of nights ago and how this all kind of like sucked the attention away from what was happening with the Celtics. And I don't know if anyone's asking questions about the, uh, the email Udoka scandal up there. So just your general thoughts on, on what's been going on in Golden State.
0: Well, appreciate you calling in, uh, Dave. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. An interesting question, Chuck. Your thoughts?
4: Yeah, you know my answer might disappoint. I'm a little bit of old school. I'm, I'm going to let me preface by saying I'm a 1990s. I'm a Knicks fan, and 1990s is the greatest era. And some would argue that Charles Oakley, Anthony Mason, and the Ewing mugged everyone down the court <laughs> time. So I just want to give you my, my my built-in bias, right? Um, knowing sports that this this was in practice, right? And this actually happens a lot more than people think. I think the most famous one in practice was Michael Jordan punched Steve Kerr in the early 90s. We don't have videotape of that. I wonder if we did have videotape of that. He said something and he popped them and Steve Kerr went down. You could go back in history of people with clean, pristine images like Roger Stallback was in a, a couple fist fights with his backup quarterback. He got punched and a few weeks later he punched them back. But I would argue probably 80 to 90% never see the light of day, never make the news, gets closed in-house. And in this case, um, TMZ reported it, and we all know about it. And, you know, there are even some whispers that that, that the team leaked it, that maybe not want to pay Draymond a contract later on and whatnot. But from what I know in locker rooms and what I know in fights that that are, are more commonplace than people think, I have a more muted view of it. I have a more... You know what? They'll sort of work it out. And I know people say all the time, well, if I did this in my workplace or if there was a physical uh, um, altercation in my workplace, this would happen. But, but there's really very little about sports that resembles everyone else's workplace, you know, whether it's the concussions in the NFL, whether it's um, you could be fired mid-contract, whether it's a salary cap. There's so little that, that that translates from the world of sports to the regular workplace that sometimes when we pull that out, it's very selective. So I have a more muted reaction than I think most people. And that comes from my knowledge of sports and practice and the locker
0: room. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of had a similar thought, even though, you know, as listeners, by bit of necessary. No, I don't I don't follow uh, a conventional sports closely. But, uh, you know, one thing that I do understand is sort of the dynamics that you just uh, laid out, Chuck, that, you know, these sorts of dust up scrapes, uh, uh, you know, they, they they happen a lot in uh, professional sports. I mean, a lot of big egos, a lot of uh, emotions running high, you know, a lot of uh, high stakes and uh, all sorts of things that can explode. But it, it's true that I think a lot of these things are often consigned to a rumor and uh, we don't typically have the kind of evidence for it like uh, we we saw here but on another sort of level with it um uh, uh chuck i'm wondering you know and, and obviously it can be, you know, we, we can't know a lot about the uh, internal workings of a lot of these organizations. But I feel like the whole situation with uh, the fight with Draymond kind of uh, raises uh, questions about his relationship with the uh, uh, Golden State Warriors as um, uh, uh, an organization. And, uh, you know, I'm just sort of wondering what 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 you think uh, this all reflects on that a uh, particular dynamic and, and what it could mean for anything for Jordan Poole as well.
6: Well, Jordan Poole's signed
4: is, is much younger. He was signed to a contract. Draymond Green is older. He's been part of the Big Three with Steph and um Clay Thompson, and he's going to be a little more on the downside, right? So if he has, if he's up for a contract next year and they sign him for a, a big contract, probably he's probably got maybe a couple productive years left here, but it would. It wouldn't be good in year three and year four. And Golden State has a lot of young people to sign. So it may be helpful that when you don't sign a sort of iconic figure on your team, you're going to get pushback. And in this sense, that should Golden State management decide not to sign him, this will help give them cover. And Draymond is a very unique player because most great players put up all these great stats. And it doesn't really work with Draymond. He's sort of the glue. He plays incredible defense. He does things that other no one else on the team could do. He's not a particularly good scorer, but he can rebound. He can play defense. He's an excellent passer from the from the, the forward position. He can guard a guard and he could guard a center. And part of the reason of guarding other bodies has made him weaker. You know, it, it takes a toll on your own body over these the as asked, asked to guard bigger people. So he's on a little bit on the decline, a little on the downside. So if I had to guess, um, I, I think that he may end up elsewhere in a couple of years.
0: Yeah, and, you know, this also raises a question to me about the role that the media plays in blowing these things up. I mean, I think when the video was released of the fight, a lot of people felt like this was released by, you know, someone who, you know, uh, might be seeking a payday. Who knows? They may be, uh, you know, a, a kind of lower level uh, person, some form of fashion in the organization. I mean, I don't doubt that that could be true. But I mean, when we talk about this uh, documentary that TNT put out about it, I mean, uh, from what I'm seeing, it, it appears as though Draymond uh, sat for an interview for this documentary talking about he didn't know that he didn't know how he didn't understand quite how viral the, the video had went saying that he was kind of just at home relaxing with his children when, um you know, all of this kind of uh, uh blew up. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, certainly it, it's understandable and a worthwhile thing to want to understand and explore when something like this happens. But I mean, does it necessarily need like a full length treatment in that way? Like, you know, I just wonder sometimes if these kinds of issues aren't exacerbated by the way that, uh, uh, the media sort of grapples with them. Now, to be fair, I have not seen this documentary. So, you know, I don't necessarily know the tone and things like that, but I don't know. I mean, should this have been something that should have been allowed to run its course? I mean, you know, our, our, you know, our media companies, I mean, do they sort of latch upon these things to try to, you know, milk whatever bit of profit they would be able to get from it? Just how do you sort of see that, that aspect of things? Chuck?
4: Listen,
0: the punch was significant. I saw the video, you know, straight from
4: sagging off boom. You know, he 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 hit him hard, right?
0: Oh yeah, he popped him, yeah. But but
4: but, but I, I I will say this, as someone who studies sports media and, and in a very quantifiable way, there is something to be said about the sports media playing up black feuds in particular, mm. black feuds, and it doesn't always have to be a punch. It could be Kobe versus Shaq, and McNabb versus T.O. It, it doesn't have to include any physical altercation there's a long history of, of things being played up when the sports protagonists are black. That that if you look into and, and I can have this analysis, you could say well, Draymond was wrong to punch Jordan Poole and sports media um loves black misbehavior, loves black athlete misbehavior, profits off black athlete misbehavior. We'll talk for a week or two weeks about black athlete misbehavior, but not about Brett Favre the funneling millions from um Individuals in Mississippi, where he pulled money off the uh, uh, allegedly off the um, welfare roll. So when you really start to analyze this, and then look at polling about most hated athletes, I started studying polling over five, six, seven years when they were polling who's the most hated athlete each year, and uh, the whole list was black, and a lot of times Ben Roethlisberger didn't make the list, you know, and you start looking at why didn't they make the list? Because the media decides what is in our consciousness all the time. And if people don't understand that, that black ma- athlete misbehavior, and I just say misbehavior, not violence, just misbehavior, is a commodity that can make profit in a, in a capitalistic sports empire, then you're not looking at the big picture. And you could have that analysis and also be in disagreement with the behavior. Both can be true and should be true.
0: Yeah, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spuddy can watch D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So, by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C., I'm your host Sean Blackman here with Jackie Luekman, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open two zero two five two one one three two zero. That's two. 252 I am here. Uh, Chuck Modiano is here as we continue. And uh, you know, Chuck, I was I was just thinking, uh, uh, you know, because we were just talking about dust-ups, you know, within teams and things like this. And I mean, switching the focus to football a little bit. I mean, we just saw this uh, uh issue with uh Callum Murray of the Cardinals and uh, head coach uh, uh Cliff Kingsbury. And I believe they had uh, kind of, they had like a heated uh, argument or exchange there on the sidelines saying that, you know, there was a difference of opinion. And, you know, so, I mean, do you think that this is a, uh, uh, sort of a similar deal to what we're discussing now without question? I don't think this is necessarily the, uh, the first time we, we see a disagreement between, you know, players and coaches or even players and players. It isn't always as, um, you know, uh, You know, it doesn't always escalate to, you know, people punching each other. But uh, just wondering what you make of this uh, Kyler Murray deal, also.
4: Yeah, no, I mean, I thought it was interesting because normally, player, he keeps it public, uh, doesn't uh, keep it public. And if you read his uh, lips, (laughs) you know, it wasn't too flattering. Um, So, you know, part of me is like, oh, that's part of it and, and, and get past it. But there's also a part of me that knows the history of the last couple of years. And I feel um, bad for Kyler Murray because he's a transcendent talent. And he's a transcendent talent who was given a rookie coach who never coached in the NFL before. I don't think Kyler Murray would have come out that way against Bill Belichick or Mike Tomlin or Pete Carroll. I don't think he'd have had that exchange. And so some of it, I do believe, is a bit of a lack of respect, but an earned lack of respect because he was a college coach hired and he had a losing record. And he was hired and he jumped the line over four more. You could have hired Jim Caldwell, a 2 guru who could have helped him out. Um, so, so the lack of respect is, is probably also tied that Cliff Kingsbury didn't deserve that job. And I think what you're going to see is some of the underperformance, particularly when DeAndre Hopkins was out and he you know, have this great guy to, to catch everything. You're you're seeing lack of coaching, and what they do, what they used to do, is they would take a college guy and they say he has a great system, right? Oh, he has a brilliant mind. This was the language used for Cliff Kingsbury. He has a brilliant mind. They said this about Urban Meyer as well. Yeah, they said this about Matt Rule, two coaches, college coaches who were just fired. And what happens is in college, these coaches have far superior talent than their opponents. And that far superior talent makes them look great. And instead of saying they have far superior talent, what they do is they assign it to their scheme. They have a brilliant mind, a brilliant coach. And guess what? When that same coach comes to the NFL where the talent gap between the worst and the best team is so much smaller, and then you have to really outthink things, well, then it's a different story. And then when they understand your new system and you have to readjust, you don't have the experience Uh, that other coaches have to readjust. We see your weakness. And what I think what you're seeing part of Kyler Murray is saying, why did you give me this terrible coach? I could have done so much better.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, sticking with uh, football, Excuse me for just a moment. Um, On the show, we've been following the issue of uh, Tua Tonga-Valoa, you know, as part of our ongoing conversation around how the NFL uh, handles or perhaps mishandles uh, the whole issue of concussions and head trauma and things like that. Uh, Tua Tonga-Valoa, of course, quarterback for the Dolphins, actually set to return to action this Sunday in an effort against the uh, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, uh, uh, you know, Tonga-Valoa said that, you know, he actually lost consciousness when he was sacked and hit on the head on uh, the ground uh, during that game against the Bengals, which took place in Cincinnati back in late uh, uh, September. And so, you know, just sort of wondering what do you think the uh, uh Veloa Incident really says about the reality of uh, the National Football League and how it handles these kinds of uh, grievous injuries. You know, as opposed to uh, some of its uh, pronouncements and just what that could mean for uh, young athletes like Tua.
4: Yeah, well, well what it means is it's a billion dollar empire, and there is a game on Thursday night coming up with Amazon, your your friend Jeff Bezos, um, with Amazon. <laughs> And it was a big Thursday night game and they wanted to talk about this game. So there's pressure both from the NFL and the Miami Dolphins to get uh, uh, to a back on that field. And he never should have come back in the previous game in the second half. I think we all saw the video. He tried to stand up and his legs gave out. I think you don't have to be a doctor or a scientist to realize that that wasn't a bad back that was going on. You know, we've all had injuries. There was something neurological going on. And what they had is that they had a doctor say that it wasn't neurological and let me tell for for listeners who don't follow sports let me tell you something there's no such thing as a doctor who is independent from nfl they they work for the nfl and even if they say that that they are are independent consultant it's not true because if the could their job is to keep players on the field and if their job was to be ethical and to err on the side of keeping players off the field they wouldn't have that job. And people have to understand that. And they know that. So there's it's a predisposition to hire people who are more likely to, to the doctor to say to get back on that field. And that was an extreme example of the rod that goes on every single day, whether it's concussion or other injuries in the NFL. And now, because that was such a glaring example, all eyes are on it. And there's far more caution to other players that may be very temporary um, or not, we that remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, and you know, there's another aspect of this that I thought was pretty interesting, Chuck, in terms of Basically, the, the politics of Thursday night football, as it uh, seems like it's a real um, it's been a real success uh, so far for uh, uh, Amazon, uh, who has been streaming it. Um, I'm looking at a piece here on CNN Business from September 22nd that says, quote, the Tech Giants first exclusive NFL game, which saw the Kansas City Chiefs edge out the Los Angeles Chargers 27 to 24, averaged 13 million viewers last Thursday, according to Nielsen, and so Chuck, what do you see as like uh, the connection? As you know, efforts like this, you know, clearly aimed at sort of expanding, uh, uh you know, a, a profit motive, if you will, or a uh, you know income stream, if you want to put it that way, for both uh, Amazon and the league, and how you think it factors into issues like uh, the Tua Valois situation?
4: I think it does factor in. Everyone wanted him on the field, not just the Dolphins. Amazon, a partnership, it's their first year. They've been uh, blowing it up. If you And I watch all the games, um, and I listen to the commentary very closely. You could hear what's said in the production meetings. You could hear what was being talked about. And let me, let me just say something that separately stood out to me to this point. Over the entire time, there was a narrative, and it was led by Kirk Herbstreet, and he kept going back and forth, over and over, throughout the four quarters, how the new coach, Mike McDaniels, was working wonders for Tua, was just doing wonders for Tua. That was the narrative the whole time. And, and how terrible Tua was in with, with, his previous coach. Well, his previous coach was Brian Flores. And Brian Flores had, currently has a lawsuit against the NFL for discriminatory hiring. And so it would actually behoove the NFL or announcers to push how good the new coach was doing and to be surrounded by Tua. Now, they didn't mention that that the Dolphins were 8-1 and one in their final nine games last year and that, that that extent was already going on. They didn't mention how important having Tyreek Hill, the wide receiver acquisition, would do for a young quarterback. They weren't focusing on that. They were focusing on Mike McDaniel's coaching. And I, I didn't. I started thinking it was so over the top that it made me start to suspect, okay, in the production meetings, and they have production meetings and they're told to push narratives, were where, they given orders? Was Kirk Herbstreit given orders to push this narrative? I think so, just from my knowledge of media. And when I add that to the Brian Flores lawsuit and Amazon, I could see why all that, too, would give pressure to put Tua back on the field.
0: And we're going to squeeze in another caller here. Kier, tell us what's on your mind.
6: Hello. Good afternoon, y'all. Real quickly, um, I just had a quick question about the NFL, more around your opinion. So ever since the Colin Kaepernick situation happened around 2015, 16, I've been not watching the NFL, just on my own personal boycott. And I'll admit I might've failed a couple for like a super bowl here or there. But my main question is, um, I'm basically starting to miss it and like I missed the excitement of watching it. So how do you kind of juggle knowing what the NFL is and then also like the enjoyment of sports versus, feeling like you're feeding into it while also um, consuming it, if that makes sense. Hopefully it does. Thank you for your time.
0: Well, thank you, Kier. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Chuck, your thoughts?
6: It makes total sense. I get the
4: question all the time, all the time. I respect the question. First, I respect anyone who decides to boycott NFL. If that is your stance, I respect that stance. Um, let me say this. The NFL, if you take the hundred top 100 shows in 2021 how that were highest rated, Seventy-five of those top hundred shows were NFL games. This is how this is the stature the NFL has in American society. There's there's no close second. It, it, that's what it is. It's not going away. And people operate in this. And this is the pact I made. And I, you gotta let other people decide if that works for them or not. I write about the NFL. I watch NFL. I'm not gonna lie. I have fans. But the pact I make with myself and my own ethics is that I don't want to seed that ground to to. Everyone who could rightly criticize the NFL has left the NFL, so we can't critique it um, for other people who need it for the for the, all those millions of people who need to hear these critiques. So if I'm going to watch the NFL, and if I'm not going to lie, and if I'm going to enjoy it, I have to call out the violence um, at at every turn. I have to call out the concussions at every turn. I have to call out the racism in not hiring black coaches. At every turn, I have to call out the racism and how a white quarterback is is differentiated different from a black quarterback who does not get as much time, who does not get as much growing um, uh, support and all all the sexism and the homophobia and everything that comes along with a corrupt NFL and the greedy owners and the owners that mirror this this capitalistic society run by a one percent NFL is everything that is wrong in American society. But you know what? we have to critique it too. So that's a personal decision based on anyone else. And I believe personally, I am more effective critiquing all of these things than sitting it out. But I respect anybody who decides to sit it out.
0: Yeah, I actually can't uh, boycott the NFL. I already wasn't uh, watching it. But yeah, you you know, Chuck, there's another thing, and this is a complete aside, but I do think sometimes about how different attempts to launch like a real alternative to the NFL, particularly in the off season and how, you know, lately they just don't seem to really, uh, Pop, you know, and and I'm speaking specifically of like, you know, uh, attempts at reviving the XFL, the USFL, uh, what was it, the All-American Football League or whatever, you know, I mean, why is it that you think these things tend to have uh, such an issue, uh, uh, sort of, you know, really getting off the ground in a substantive way? I mean, obviously the NFL, been around much longer, uh, uh, you know, brand recognition, brand loyalty, uh, 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 supremely well-funded and resourced, but I mean, uh, what do you think is the issue with some of these attempts at alternatives.
4: I just think the NFL is too big. I mean, they're just too big. They weren't as big in the 60s when the AFL, um, in, you know, intervened and then ended up merging in 1970. Back then, baseball was still king, right, in, in, in the 60s. Now, it's it's the NFL and no one's close second. And, you know, they run everything. So I just don't see anyone being able to, to upstart giving the power and the reach and the media uh, that they have in their pocket.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think it's also noteworthy. And I think we've definitely discussed with you before about, you know, when we talk about these players and, you know, these uh, guys who sign these big contracts and who are just supposed, you know, who are basically supposed to, to, to shut up and play or to shut up and dribble or whatever, you know, the specifics depending on uh, uh, the sport itself. And as always, Chuck, I just have to shake my head because people in the United States, they may be the only people in the world that are under some delusion that sports is not political and, and, and will actually get upset. will get emotionally angry uh, if someone raises a pertinent political issues as if the thing isn't profoundly political on its face. And so when you have a Colin Kaepernick or a Mahmoud Raouf, or uh, a Muhammad Ali or things like that. You know, these people are treated as if, you know, they're the problem instead of the deep systemic issues uh, of class, gender, and so many other things that are all shot through a lot of these institutions as well. You know what I mean?
4: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a excellent point.
0: Yeah, and, and it just really, it really is uh, sort of wild, but I think it what it actually reveals, because in truth, I actually don't think People are, I don't think they really mean it when they say, I don't want politics in a uh, 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 sports. I think what they're really saying is I want to ignore these very real issues that have flesh and blood impacts on millions of people. When I watch my sports, I want to look at sports purely as entertainment. I don't want to have to think about uh, the outside world. I certainly don't want to have to take any active role in uh, uh, the politics that, that are happening all around me. I just want to watch a bunch of dudes slamming to each other or shoot a Ball at a hoop and not think about the sort of obvious uh, uh dynamics uh that go into it both on and off the court. So it's a fundamentally dishonest way of thinking about sports. And I think that we don't see uh in other parts of the world where people seem clear about the obvious political nature of it. But we're gonna leave it there for today and this week here on by any means necessary on Radio Spotify in Washington, D.C. We want to thank Chuck Modiano so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with the non-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.